Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Right. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen from Teachers College, Columbia University. And I'm excited today uh, to bring you guys a book uh, that, that I think is very important to this day and age, especially uh, in... Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen from Teachers College, Columbia University, and I'm excited today uh, to bring you guys a book uh, that that I think is very important to this day and age, especially uh, in education and sort of a globalized world. And I have Comparative Education Research Approaches and Methods, and this is the second edition, uh, from Mark Bray. Bob Adamson, and Mark Mason. And this is from the Comparative Education Research Center of Hong Kong University and Springer. And it was published May 1st, 2014, or or this uh, new second edition was uh, published then. Uh, And so really this book is an expansive uh, overview of really how you're supposed to or how you can uh, compare education systems. I think is important, again, today, uh, in our world where we're doing this, maybe potentially more uh, than ever. And it's an expansive volume, yet it's, it's, it's easy, uh, I think, to understand for, uh, for an audience that might be more attuned to uh, education and some of the issues in education already, which I think a lot of our audience members uh, of New Books in Education are. So today I have uh, one of the authors here. I have uh, Dr. Mark Bray, who is the director of the Comparative Education Research Center, uh, at Hong Kong University. Uh, and it's really nice to have somebody here on the podcast who's truly sort of at the, the top uh, of their field and, and on the podcast today. So I'm really excited to have him on. And so without further ado, uh, uh, Dr. Bray, welcome. Thank you very much for being on today. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for taking an interest in the book. Absolutely. Uh, so this this book has kind of a, a lot of a moving parts and people involved and, and things like that. So I think maybe uh, it, it could be best if you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, the center, uh, the Comparative Education Research Center, and then sort of how the book uh, came together. And then um, maybe as well a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you get involved in comparative and international education? Sure. Let me begin with the center. Sure. Uh, as you've already indicated, we are a center at the University of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, we see as very much a place where East meets West, where part of China, we are uh, nevertheless a very special part of China. And we have been running this center now for 20 years. We were founded in 1994. And this book indeed comes out of the center. It is an edited book with... Uh, contributors, all of whom are linked to the center in some way. Uh, I think the center would see the book as shifting the global center of gravity for scholarship in this field. 
Now, the field of comparative education historically has been dominated by the United States and by Western Europe. What we are doing in Hong Kong is saying, look, we have got an Asian voice here, and each of the chapters indeed asserts an Asian voice and brings a different angle to the field. Absolutely. That's, that's perfect. And uh, maybe can you kind of uh, tell us a little about yourself, you know, how, how you got into uh, international comparative education and sort of uh, your background. Sure. Well, you're listening to my accent and you're listening to the pure English accent from England. <laughs> uh, but I have to admit that I've been in Hong Kong myself for nearly 30 years, since 1986. Uh, I began my life as a teacher in Africa, in Kenya, and then in Nigeria. Then I went to Papua New Guinea, uh, but found myself in Hong Kong. So I've got a pretty global background myself. Uh, I hold the title of UNESCO Chair in Comparative Education. Now that's partly reflecting my own links with UNESCO. I took time out from Hong Kong in the period 2006 to 2010, to be director in Paris of UNESCO's International Institute for Educational Planning, IIEP. But I felt that I wanted to return back, return to the academic field, so indeed I came back to Hong Kong after that. But I have had a pretty global career. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a, I think that experience being in sort of the real I guess practitioner world, and then coming back to academia uh, gives you gives you maybe a rare glimpse that isn't isn't always seen in in academia, and I think that uh, could be reflected in, in some of the some of the writing here. Uh, There's certainly some of the cases. Um, this book is the second edition. Uh, the first edition came out in 2007. Uh, can you kind of talk about you know what's changed since 2007, and and what really has changed? sort of for the book specifically? Sure. Uh, the 2007 book was very widely welcomed. We were very excited by the welcome. Uh, an indication of the welcome is not only where the English version has gone, but also that partners decided to translate it into six languages. So it is also available in Chinese, in Farsi, in French, in Italian, in Japanese, in Spanish. That was very exciting to us. Uh, the second edition is already adding to the list of languages. So uh, it's already in the pipeline in Portuguese, in Russian, in Turkish, and perhaps in Arabic. So that's just a little <laughs> statement about how the first edition spread around the world. The second is also spreading. Mm, absolutely. Now, your, your question was then, how are they different? Uh, for the current edition, the 2014 edition, we did a pretty thorough house cleaning job. That is to say, we, having used this book in the classroom, having discussed it with different people, indeed having discussed it with translators on which parts are clear, which parts need to be improved, all of the chapters have been refurbished. Uh, what we needed to do in the updating, I would think I should highlight two particular aspects that have been updated. We live, as we all know, in a fast-moving world, and particularly the impact of globalization 
is is affecting everything we do. Sure. But globalization is itself a multicolored phenomenon. Uh, one can just have rather simple phrases about it. But uh, the second edition addresses issues of globalization, not just in education as a phenomenon, but also specifically the field of comparative education. Right. Secondly, I think I would also highlight the the rankings that have become such a phenomenon mm. of contemporary life. Rankings particularly of systems through PISA, operated by OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, but also institutional rankings, universities. I think these have changed the nature of comparative education. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you kind of talked about, uh, you know, in the book, obviously, there's a, a great section. Uh, I mean, the, I guess the bulk of the section are really these uh, areas of, of what you can compare. Uh, but maybe jumping, if you can kind of give us a, a, a little maybe evolution or talk about the field in general. Some people who are maybe just in education but not necessarily in comparative education might not really understand that this is actually its own separate different field. So can you maybe just kind of mention uh, exactly, you know, what is comparative education and sort of uh, how does that evolution look like? Very good. Uh, Comparative education is a field which brings together scholars' interest in comparison. the oldest society in the field is the U.S.-based Comparative and International Education Society, of which I happen to be the current vice president. That society was founded in 1956. It is the largest worldwide among what are now 40 national and regional and language-based education societies. Mm. All of these societies themselves come under the umbrella of a world body called the World Council of Comparative Education Societies. Uh, I'm a past Secretary General and a past President of that world body. And then there are, as I have hinted, subnational, national, regional bodies. We do have a Hong Kong Society. I'm a past President of that uh, and work with all of the others. Now, within the field... The main emphasis is on methods of comparison and units for comparison. How do we compare? Comparisons are not neutral. Uh, One of the motifs of the field is we do not see things as they are, we see them as we are. In other words, the person doing the comparison brings her or his spectacles to the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So... uh, there is a field. It's a vibrant field. It's an exciting field. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I encourage any uh, listener out there who's maybe, you know, not really uh, familiar with the field to, to definitely take a look at this book and, and others uh, from uh, Dr. Bray and, and from maybe some of his colleagues at uh, the center for sure. Um, and, and there's, you know, a vibrant uh, world um, as, as just discussed, uh, of, of inter- international comparative education. Uh, but kind of jumping back into the book, uh, and, and one of the things that uh, you're, you're well known for in the specific field is the, uh, uh, the cube, 
right? The uh, uh, framework for comparative education analysis. Now, this is a podcast, but I will post uh, maybe a link or something to to this uh, illustration. But maybe can you describe a little bit about uh, what this cube represents and, and sort of how you can uh, use it in analysis? The cube was published in the Harvard Education Review in... 1995. It is an article by myself and Murray Thomas, who himself is a former president of the U.S.-based Comparative and International Education Society. In that article, we felt that the field of comparative education tends to be dominated by world regions, by countries, and to neglect lower-level comparisons going all, all the way down to individuals. Uh, individuals, classrooms, schools, districts, states, provinces, countries, world regions. Uh, we felt that the field of comparative education was at the macro level and was neglecting lower level units. By corollary, we felt that many other fields are dominated by lower level units for comparison and don't really grasp the implications of bigger units of analysis. And so people who are working in psychology or in classroom discourse or in school management might be finding it useful to look at, well, how are the contexts of what they're discussing shaped by the higher levels? So particularly we looked at the way that smaller units are nested within larger units and how that sets units for comparison. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's, it's great, especially for uh, maybe people who, who haven't done uh, much research in the past or they're trying to get started. I think it's a, a definitely something that gives a visual representation that's not always found. And you kind of talk about you know, some of the different uh, aspects and some people who sort of built along, along those lines. Uh, I think specifically you reference the uh, sort of the time uh, issue and the comparisons over time, which maybe wasn't represented in the, in the original 1995 uh, publication. Uh, so that's fantastic. I, I, I recommend that, and you know that article's there, but it also goes into it in, in this book too. And I think it jumps in uh, perfectly with the rest of the book. I also want to talk about though, uh, who who is doing the comparison? Uh, who are the actors uh, in this field specifically? Well, of course, there are many actors. And uh, since we're talking in an academic framework, the book is chiefly aimed at professors, students in the academic arena. But beyond the academic arena are huge numbers of different actors, uh, starting with parents. They you know, certainly compare schools, they compare classrooms, they may even compare education systems when they are looking at uh, where to send their children. Mm -hmm. uh, practitioners, school principals compare. Policy makers certainly compare, but with their own lenses and according to the exigencies of whatever is pressing them at, their, at a particular time. And then international agencies. Now, that, again, is where I would bring in UNESCO. UNESCO is the United Nations right. Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. World Bank, OECD, others also make comparisons, but with their own lenses. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes, as you mentioned, you know, you, you had that past with UNESCO. Sometimes these lines are blurred or crisscrossed, uh, which I think is uh, an important uh, aspect as well. Have you had, a, 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 maybe a little bit outside the book, but have you had, uh, I know you mentioned that this is more for researchers or people who are in the field, but have you had uh, policymakers come and, and ask you about things in the book or curious about things in the book uh, or in general with, with the field? I do a lot of work with policymakers, particularly in ministries of education in my UNESCO role and continuing. As you say, I've had the privilege of crossing the road backwards and forwards between the academic world and the policymaking world. And I find that they cross-fertilize each other in very meaningful ways. And so I do indeed spend a lot of time discussing these types of issues with policymakers, saying, look, what can we really find from the field of comparative education. Now, again, this comes back to how is 2014, the second edition of the book, different from the 2007 and from previous writings in the field. Part of how things are different is the accelerated pace of internationalization, that policymakers can barely afford to be only domestic. They have to show that they are international in some way. But the question is, How are they international and how can we avoid the dangers of simplistic policy cloning that, uh, okay, something happens in country X, therefore we just import it to country Y. And so, indeed, I spend a lot of time talking with policymakers on that sort of dimension of their work. Right, absolutely. And I think you're, you know, you're talking right about, you know, policy borrowing and sort of how... Uh, those go hand in hand together, which I think is a good segue into your. So you break this up, the book into the first. This is the first part is the directions. I guess is how you how you frame the first part of the book, which we kind of covered uh, with the with the first part of the podcast. So jumping into, I think maybe the meat of the book is uh, part two: units of comparison. And so, can you kind of explain? We probably can't go through each and every one of these. Uh, but can you kind of explain uh, what these units of comparison are and sort of um, we can kind of jump into uh, maybe some of the ones that might be uh, of interest to you for, for the podcast? Uh, the units of comparison is the part which has been especially attractive and has been seen as especially innovative compared to other books that have uh, previously existed. And it, that also links to the cube. The cube can be used to show what a researcher is doing, but also what a researcher is not doing. Mm -hmm. So a person who has a particular study on, for example, comparing curricula between states for the whole population can say, look, I am only doing this. I am not doing it across countries or across districts or across schools. Mm -hmm. So the cube, therefore, is useful for showing what you're not doing as well as what you are doing. Then back to units of comparison. Uh, As you say, we have chosen uh, 10, 11 units for particular focus. And an issue for the field of comparison is what indeed are you comparing and how do you know what you're looking at? What are the boundaries of the phenomenon? 
the section starts with comparing places, which is the most common unit for comparison within sure. the field of comparative education. Sure. And indeed, that's where the cube puts its emphasis. Places, whether they are classrooms, schools, districts, provinces, states, countries, etc. But it then goes on to other units which mm -hmm. may be more fuzzy, more blurred. Right. And uh, perhaps there I would just mention comparing cultures. Uh, com people compare cultures all the time, but often rather loosely. And the question is, well, what actually is a culture? How do I know a culture when I see one? Right, right, absolutely. And I, how about, you know, if, since you, you, you do use a lot of these East Asian comparisons, which I think is great, uh, especially we're trying to shift out of uh, this very Eurocentric view or American view or, uh, you know, Western view, if you will. So, uh, and, and I think, you know, you talk about like fuzzy, uh, fuzzy sort of like how do we describe this thing? You wrote specifically uh, the chapter, chapter five, or, uh, on uh, comparing systems. And I think yes. it's a great example uh, using uh, China with uh, Macau and Hong Kong uh, as, as this system. Can you, and can you kind of talk about that chapter a little bit? Certainly. Uh, so comparing systems, again, the first starting point is what do we mean by a system? How do we know a system when we see one? Uh, Hong Kong operates on the political formula of one country, two systems. That means that we have the People's Republic of China with the Communist Party and its apparatus, and we have a different framework in Hong Kong with our currency and our legal system and political system. Uh, similarly, in education, uh, there are countries which are explicitly diverse in their systems. One can look at the United Kingdom where Scotland is different from England, from Wales, from Northern Ireland. One can look at Canada where you have Francophone systems and Anglophone systems, similarly in Belgium and elsewhere. So you've mentioned China, Hong Kong, Macau. Uh, each of those is different. Even within a very small place like Macau, it's only got 400,000 people, there is huge diversity across school systems within a system. Within a territory, there are schools run by churches, by private organizations, offering different syllabuses for international baccalaureate, for local examinations, and so on. So that's where we unpack different systems and try to find out what we can learn from such comparisons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and just you know, kind of diving into a couple of these other ones that, that interest you know, I guess me and what I maybe consider some of uh, my listeners might be interested in as well. Uh, we we always and you talked about this at the beginning of, of the podcast, and I think it's important too. Talking about these tests, we talk we have PISA, uh, we have Tim's, Pearls, and, and and these international tests that are gaining so much credence. Uh, on, from domestic uh, policymakers themselves, uh, but really, do people understand the comparisons between the two? Um, and so, you, can you kind of kind of talk about, or can you kind of talk about, you know, how how your book sets that up? The uh, PISA is especially known for its rankings, and likewise, Tim's the Trends in International Mathematics and Science Study. Uh, the 
traction of these studies does indeed exist with rankings. That is to say, a big machine operated from the OECD or from the TIMS headquarters, which means the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement, operates with a template working across countries and systems. Uh, they assess education achievements, and then they commonly rank them. Now, the OECD sometimes says that it wishes to downplay the rankings and there's a lot more to it than just rankings. But the press and others latch onto the rankings because that seems straightforward. My own view is, yes, this is indeed comparative education, but it's unsophisticated comparative education, and indeed sometimes it can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. When you have a ranking, the implication is that everybody is on the same playing field, trying to do the same thing, uh, trying to score in the same ways. And that neglects the cultures and the orientations of education systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, so we, we kind of talked about, you know, the, we see these tests or, or other different education systems. How, how do you feel policymakers or people in other countries are actually taking uh, these different policies and maybe putting them in their own country? Uh, how can we sort of assess this uh, policy borrowing? Yes, policy borrowing, I, uh, I personally prefer the uh, phrase policy cloning. Policy mm. borrowing implies you take a policy and then you hand it back at the end. <laughs> uh, that does indeed sometimes happen. But uh, policy importing, mm. policy cloning sure. is increasingly happening in our globalized world. And back to the actors in comparative education, we've talked about the OECD, the World Bank, comes in the same category, uh, UNESCO also. This is part of the role of international organizations to allow policymakers and other actors to learn from each other. That's their mandate, and it's an important mandate, and it's valuable. Where I would come in is with a plea for more sophistication. And we do in the book quote Sir Michael Sadler, who yep. was one of the early forebears of the field. And in 1900, over a century ago, had a very evocative piece of advice saying, we cannot wander at pleasure among the gardens of the world, picking off a leaf here and a branch there and put it in the soil at home and expect to have a living plant. He's, uh, he's over 100 years ago highlighting the dangers of uncritical policy cloning. And I think that that message is as valid today as it was then. Absolutely. I, I think that's uh, a, definitely a great point uh, that, that you guys uh, put in here, put, put into the book, uh, Sir, Sir Michael Sadler and, and his quotes. Uh, if you could maybe talk about sort of the one maybe takeaway that uh, a student or a researcher, someone who's just getting into com comparative uh, education, if they can have one takeaway, maybe one theme that, that they get out of this book, uh, kind of how, how would you describe that? Or what would you want them to really take away? My takeaway would be 
Comparison is essential. Comparison, indeed, is the basis of practically anything we say. Comparison needs to be done systematically and carefully. You have to think, what are my units of analysis? How do I know what I'm comparing? What is shaping these units of analysis? And particularly, what are the contextual variables which are shaping what is going on in the education system. And so what the book does do, we have highlighted in this discussion the section on units of comparison, uh, comparing places, systems, cultures, values, policies, curricula, etc. Each of them needs to be looked at carefully. The cube may help in analyzing what what the analyst is looking at, and bringing in many of the contextual colors for analysis of an education system or a phenomenon. Absolutely. I think that's uh, a great way to sort of uh, uh, cap off uh, uh, the book and, and, and the book discussion. And I, and I really uh, encourage anyone who listened to that and said, oh, you know what, I, I kind of... Uh, I, I want to get more of that. I want to understand uh, these different comparisons. I, I want to, I think you, you said nuance uh, earlier in, in the podcast. I think that's very important when we talk about uh, comparisons in education today. Uh, it, there just is, is a, a lack of maybe awareness uh, and, and a simplicity that, that comes from the media. A lot of times, you know, they're not trained in these kinds of things. So for, for anyone really interested in, an understanding how to actually make these real comparisons. Uh, I think this is, is the handbook um, for you and maybe for your students. Uh, so if you could, you know, this is kind of the, the last question we usually uh, ask on, on our new books network. Uh, but what's next? I mean, this, you know, came out uh, earlier in the summer. And so what have you kind of been working on next? What, what can we look forward to from yourself and, and maybe the center? Well, we are working on all of these themes. I am myself working especially on the so-called shadow education system of mm. private supplementary tutoring. Uh, this is a specific phenomenon, supplemental education out of school classes. It's called a shadow system because when the curriculum in the regular schools changes, then it changes outside the schools in the tutoring centers and the one-to-one -one tutors. This is uh, an example of how one can use some of the themes of this book. Uh, in East Asia, shadow education, private supplemental tutoring has long been a major phenomenon. It is now becoming a global phenomenon. So the question is, what can people in North America and Europe learn from East Asia on this phenomenon? And indeed, how can one unpack the nuance of what is happening here at the system level, at the school level, at the classroom level, at the individual level. This is just one of the ways in which we are using some of the tools from this book to analyze a specific phenomenon which is gobbling up a huge amount of family resources worldwide and is growing in parallel to regular school systems. Absolutely. I used to live in uh, South Korea so I, I've seen shadow education firsthand. Now I live in New York City, and surprise, surprise, I'm seeing uh, the, the what they call hagwans or study centers, if you will, over here in the United States, which 
know, before I left and came back, I think was potentially something new or at least something new uh, for me. So you're absolutely right in this uh, uh, growing phenomenon coming from East Asia and maybe maybe heading west, which uh, you know maybe something exciting in the field that we potentially haven't seen seen as much. So we'll look forward to uh, something on that, so, uh, research coming uh, from yourself and the center on that. Uh, but uh, I do uh, appreciate Dr. Mark Gray coming on today, and I encourage everybody uh, to go check out Comparative Education Research Approaches and Methods, uh, second edition, and uh, we'll put up a link, uh, obviously, on, on, on New Books Network, and uh, I hope you learned something. Thank you. <laughs>